So now we've been going pretty hard in our Christology series. Uh, Brother John, could you close that door, please? Um, Armando, thank you. In our Christology series, and if you have been tracking along, we've been touching on the person of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ. And that's a very loaded sentence, you know, or, or saying or doctrine, the person of Christ. Not even touching his work yet, but the person of Christ. And you have seen, if you've been here uh, Sunday evening after Sunday evening when we considered uh, the person of Christ, <clears throat> that there's much that goes into speaking about the person of Christ. There are many debates that have happened throughout the centuries speaking about the person of Christ. A majority of the ancient creeds and confessions that you read of, the Athanasian Creed, uh, the Nicene Creed, the Creed of Chalcedon and Constantinople and those various uh, councils that came together, what were they discussing? They were discussing the person of Christ, who he is. You know, at Nicaea, is he of the same substance or essence with the Father? Or is he like similar substance or essence? Is he like the Father? Or what you have at uh, Chalcedon, uh, or Chalcedon, how do we uh, speak of this one person with two natures? How does he operate as one person with two natures? What is a person? What's a nature? Uh, so we, we dove into that. A little bit and what we have, what we have seen, uh, with the person of Christ is that Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. I hope that we've all got that down pat that Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God, which simply means Jesus Christ is God. He is true God of true God. All of what it means to be God, Jesus Christ is. But also, he's truly man. And we spoke of that in the incarnation when the son takes on human flesh. He takes on all of our common uh, properties and all of those things that constitute our humanity. Uh, Jesus Christ, the eternal son, assumes. So then we have one person with two natures. Very God of very God, very man of very man, yet one Christ as our confession tells us. And then we learn more about this person of Christ when we spoke about the impeccability of Christ, that in his person, he is unable, incapable of sinning. That sin does not stick to him as sin sticks to us. Temptations don't stick to him as temptations stick to us. And then we learn about the virgin birth and the necessity especially in this day and age, of affirming that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, was born truly of a true virgin. That Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. And we looked at all the things and all the, the inner workings that happened there. Then we considered the Holy Spirit's role in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. That the Holy Spirit is given at conception. He forms and frames the human nature of Jesus Christ in the womb of Mary. And from conception to exaltation, and even now, the Holy Spirit is Christ's closest companion. And he gives that spirit to us. 
So now that we have considered the person of Christ, we now want to move into the work of Christ. And although we aren't to separate Christ's person from his work, uh, we have to when we want to have a a proper uh, Christology and understanding who Christ is in his person and how that relates to his work. So now we want to dive into the work of Christ. And again, when much of the things that we spoke about concerning the person of Christ will come up again, especially in uh, this lesson uh, this evening. But the work of Christ. What do we mean when we say the work of Christ? What do you think of? Well, many of us think that the work of Christ consists of Jesus dying for me. When we say the work of Christ, when you ask someone, what was the work of Christ? The common answer is, well, he died for me, which is an essential part of the work of Christ. Indeed, that is what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to die for his people. And that's correct. But you can't have death without having life. So when we consider the work of Christ, we must put both the death of Christ, which we know as his passive obedience, and his life, his active obedience. Now, those are not necessarily two separate things. They're all one obedience, but we do make distinctions there. When we consider the work of Christ, we consider Christ in his life and death. What did he do for us? When we consider the work of Christ, not necessarily who he is when we consider the person of Christ. When we were talking about the person of Christ, we were saying, who is this one who came and lived and died and rose for us? And then in the work of Christ, we say, what did this one do? What did he do for us to uh, for us to inherit uh, and merit this eternal life that we have in him? So. Where do we begin when we speak of the work of Christ? We can begin at Christ's baptism. We can begin at the temptation of Christ. We can begin at how Christ fulfills and obeys the law, which we will get to. We'll get to all those things. But in order for us to have a good grasp on the work of Christ and what the eternal son came to do for us, we must consider the covenant of redemption. If we're to have any concept and any idea of what Christ came to do for us, we must consider the covenant of redemption. And this lesson is actually a lesson that you have heard before that I've preached before. Uh, I just updated it, uh, taken out some quotes, uh, added things that I think will be helpful for all of us. Um, but when we consider the covenant of redemption, and uh, if you're taking notes, you can say this is the first point. The covenant. What is the covenant of redemption? What is the covenant of redemption? Uh, that's a term that you've heard before. The covenant of redemption. You've heard of covenant before. Uh, Pastor Antonio uh, went over the covenant of works extensively. The covenant of grace. Uh, he did two on the covenant of redemption. Uh, how do I know that? Because I listen to, to those sermons uh, recently. Uh, but 
what are what do we mean when we say the covenant of redemption? Well, what do we mean by covenant? Well, covenant is simply an agreement. It's a pact between two or more parties, right? Um, when one gets married, you are making a covenant between each other, right? There are obligations. Uh, that you add to, you know, if you do this, I do this type of relationship or, or deal. But when we think of the covenant of works, it wasn't a, I do this, what do you think about it? The covenant that God made with Adam in the garden. But rather, it was a covenant that God imposed upon Adam. Meaning that whether you like it or not, since you are created in my image, you are to do it. But we aren't to think of that when we think of the covenant of redemption. We aren't to think that uh, the father comes to the son with an idea, and the son sits on it, he waits it out, and then he goes back to the father, and they discuss uh, what the father had said to the son. And then likewise with the spirit. Uh, that would destroy the one will of God, right? We believe in one God, one will, one essence. So what is the covenant of redemption? Well, the covenant of redemption is simply this. It's that covenant established in eternity, which is a big word, eternity, between the father who gives to the son or gives the son to be the redeemer of the elect and requires of him conditions, another big word, for their redemption. And the son who voluntarily agrees to fulfill these conditions, and the spirit who voluntarily applies the work of the son to the elect. And one thing I want you to note is in the covenant of redemption, we see the freedom of the triune God of Scripture. There's a freedom within the persons of the Trinity that they all did this voluntarily, freely. So simply said, the covenant of redemption is the agreement between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father and the Son are going to be uh, the primary parties in this covenant, where the Father gave to the Son a mission or work to accomplish. So Father, and I'm using this as analogy, and don't think that this is actually what happened, but the Father says to the son, you are to do this. He gives the son a mission to accomplish. The son is to be the head and the redeemer of the elect. That's one of the missions, right? That's one of the obligations, the, the conditions, the commands by the father to the son. And the son voluntarily takes the place of those whom the father had given to the son. The son says, yes, I take on those conditions, I take on those obligations that you are given to me, and the Spirit would empower the Son to complete the mission that was given to the Son by the Father. And this was for the glory of the triune God. How would the triune God receive glory? How would they glorify themselves, I should say? Well, they would do so by the redeeming act, by the redeeming work of the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. So again, the Father commands, gives obligations, gives a work, a mission to the Son. The Son says, yes, I will take on those commands, those obligations. I will do those things. 
And then where does the spirit come in? The father promises that he will empower the son. That he would give to the son the spirit without measure. So the son would complete his work. This is a guarantee that the son will complete the father's work. And what we see that this agreement between the father and the son, Thomas Goodwin says, is the greatest affair between persons of the highest sovereignty and majesty that ever was transacted either in heaven or on earth or wherever will be. The Puritans are wonderful when they speak about the covenant redemption because they speak of the covenant redemption in ways that uh, seem like the co- in, in eternity past, when the covenant redemption was made, all of heaven rejoiced. Like, there was something in he- there was something about this agreement between the persons of the Trinity, where all of heaven, angels rejoiced, because. When we think of the covenant of redemption, we aren't to say that it's a covenant that's being made that hopefully will come to pass, right? But it's a covenant that is made that will undoubtedly come to pass. There's, there's a glory and a majesty uh, and a wonder when we speak of the covenant of redemption. And there's also language that we can use, but there's also language that we can't use. Again, I've already noted that we can't say that in the covenant of redemption, we don't have three persons sitting at a table where the father gives the plan, the son thinks about it, and the spirit thinks about it. And they go off and they think about it some more and they come back and they replan it. Right? That's an analogy. And, and that's how the scripture uh, portrays the covenant of redemption to us, does it not? It, it portrays the covenant of redemption where the father dialogues with the son. And the son dialogues with the father. But friends, I don't know how this agreement came about. I am, I am totally out of my depth to, to, to cons- when I consider, uh, well, how did that arrangement even look between father, son, and Holy Spirit? But when we think about the covenant redemption, we aren't to think about necessarily how the arrangement took place, but what the arrangement was. It was for the glorification of the triune God, and you were involved. That in eternity past, before, and think about this, before Adam even sinned, there was a dialogue, there was a conversation going on where you were in mind where you were thought of, that you were being spoken of. That son, if you do this, you receive this. Well, what do you need to do? You need to come on the behalf of your people. You must live, die, and rise for them. And if you complete this mission, you get something, but not just for yourself but for your people as well, which leads us to the specifics of the covenant of redemption. When we say the covenant of redemption, we're talking about this work that the father gave to the son. Well, what is this work that the father gave to the son? What is this work? What was this mission? What was this obligation that the father gave to the son? What were the commitments? And these were the commitments, saints. 
The son was, must be a federal head for a specific people. That's number one. The son must be a federal head. Number two, the son must become incarnate. The son must become incarnate. Number three, he must be born under the law and live perfectly to the law of God. That's number three. And number four, he must suffer and bear the sins of his people. That's what the father gave to the son in eternity past. That he must be a federal head. He must become incarnate. He must be born and under the law and live perfectly to the law of God. And he must suffer and bear the sins of his people. That's a lot. When we consider all that what's being said and all that what's being commanded, those are the commitments of the father to the son. And he must do these things perfectly. He must represent his people perfectly. He must live for them. He must die for them. But also there was a reward that was attached, was there not? Just as there was a reward that was attached in the first covenant that was made in time and space, the covenant of works between God and Adam, there was a reward, there was an offer of eternal life, confirmed righteousness, eternal Sabbath rest. Well, similarly, when we consider the covenant of redemption, there was a reward that the father promised the son based upon obedience. And this reward is fourfold. Number one, the first reward is a bride or a love gift. If you do this, you get this bride. Number two, a specific, or uh, if the son completed his mission, um, he would be resurrected from the dead. Number two. So yes, you'd be given this bride, but also you'd be resurrected from the dead. You'd be resurrected to have new life. Thirdly, upon completion of this work from the father to the son, he would have resurrected glorified life. So not just resurrected life, but glorified life. And then number four, he would be given a name that is exalted and a name that is above every name. Those are the rewards that the son would receive if he completed his mission. The father promises that the son would receive a people, that he would have an exalted name, and he would have resurrected, exalted, or glorified life. And like I said, and we'll touch on this uh, later in some closing comments, uh, he doesn't do this simply for himself. The son doesn't receive resurrected, glorified life for himself. But all those who are united to him by faith. If Christ does this, become incarnate, live perfectly to the law, and die in the place of sinners, he would receive the reward of the covenant. Simple as this. You do this, you get that. If you don't do this, then you die. Lastly, before we close this point, we must note, uh, again, the mission that the father gave to the son is a mission that the son was to do not by himself. And a lot of times when people speak about the covenant of redemption, uh, Ian Hamilton hates this. When they speak about the covenant of redemption, they forget the spirit. Where's the spiritual? Well, the spirit, again, is to empower the incarnate son according to his human nature. You guys remember that the spirit comes upon the person of Christ, according to his human nature. 
to endow him with all these graces and, and all these gifts. Well, he is also to empower the son to complete the mission of the father. How was the son able to do the will of the father? How was he to obey the will of the father, even in the midst of persecution, in the midst of people wanting him dead, in the midst of people not accepting who he is? He doesn't do so on his own accord. He does so leaning upon the Holy Spirit. So let's move on to the second point, which is the work of the son. The work of the son. Uh, now that we have examined the covenant of redemption and we have seen that the father gave a mission for the son to do, let's look more in detail at the work of the son. In other words, when we speak about the work of the son, uh, it's fourfold. There's four things, and we already mentioned them. So we're going to go more into detail about them. There's four things that the son was to do. And number one was the son is to become, or he was to be a federal head, a federal head. And that word, those two words, carries a world of theology. Federal head, the doctrine of federal headship um, is something, saints, that you are to know like the back of your hand. Because not only will it help you when you, or when you uh, consider uh, uh, Adam, or when you consider Christ and the overall story of the Bible and your salvation, but also uh, it helps you in your prayer life. It helps you and it gives you comfort knowing that you are not united to Adam. He is not your head, but you are the body. Christ is your head. You are federally you are judicially united to Jesus Christ. So federal head. And what do we mean by that when we say federal head? Well, it's simply a representative. You've heard that language before from this pulpit, from many uh, of your favorite preachers and ministers. And if you read any systematic theology, federal headship is simply someone who goes on the behalf of another. It's a representative. It's someone who says, you get behind me and I will go before you, I will do things in the place of you. There's such glory in that, is there not, though, to speaking about it? But that's what simply what it means. It's going on the behalf of another. And when we consider the Bible, we see many federal heads, do we not? Abraham's a federal head. Noah's a federal head. David's a federal head. Moses is a federal head. But when we consider the overall story of the Bible, there's only two federal heads that matter. Adam, and who else? Christ. Those are the only two that matter. Uh, Pastor Antonio loves to say there's uh, all, all hang from the belt of only two, right? Adam or Christ. Who are you in? Who do you identify with, Adam or Christ? Uh, A.W. Pink says, there have been but two federal heads, Adam and Christ, with each of whom God entered into a covenant. Each of them acted on the behalf of others, each legally represented as definite people, so much so that all whom they represented were regarded by God as being in them. Adam represented the whole human race. Christ represented all those whom the Father had in his eternal counsels given to him. What does he mean by in them? 
It means that when Adam sinned, you sinned. For you were in Adam. That's why the Bible speaks of this language of taking you out of this kingdom of darkness, of darkness, and putting you in this, this kingdom of light. You were in Adam when Adam fell. The Apostle Paul says, as in Adam, all die. So in Christ shall all be made alive, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two in the Garden of Eden. And you all know this. Adam was your federal head, was he not? Adam represented you. He went on the behalf of you. And you might say, well, I don't accept that because I want to act on my own behalf. Saints, there is nothing in the garden that Adam did that you wouldn't have done. You would have ate of the same fruit. You would have been tempted the same way. You would have wanted to be like God. So Adam represented you. When Adam fell, you fell because you were in Adam. That's important. That's, that's, if you want to, if you want to have a good master's PhD of theology, you were in Adam. Master that. You were in Adam. He represented you when, when Adam, uh, separated himself from God, you were separated as well, okay? Now we must ask, so why did the son commit to be a federal head for a specific people? What was the purpose then? Well, the reason is this. If the son didn't commit to the father that he would be a new federal head, a better federal head, our federal head, then we simply have no reconciliation with God, right? If we don't have someone to come in our place to be better than the one who we are currently in, then we have no hope for salvation. We all simply die in our sins, do we not? So we need someone to come to represent us. You see, saints, the sin that we inherited from our first federal head, Adam, was so great that we needed one who would come to represent us rightly, to represent us properly, and undo the curse of Adam. Noah couldn't do this. None of his sons could have done this. Abraham was not fitted to do this, nor was Moses or David. They all pointed to the one who was properly fitted to be a federal head for his people. And what we see is that only the God-man could do this, not simply a mere man. And that, saints, hits us like a ton of bricks, does it not? Because we think we can save ourselves. We think collectively, as a unit, we can save ourselves. But it took the eternal Son to come in our likeness in order for us to be redeemed. Only the God-man could succeed where the first man failed. And the beauty of the doctrine of the federal headship is that all that the incarnate son, Jesus Christ, did, this, this is where we worship Christ in light of, he did for you. That's the beauty of the doctrine of federal headship. That when Christ lived, he does not live simply for himself because he does not need to be redeemed. He lives for you. When he dies, he dies in your place. As Pastor Antonio wonderfully put it this morning, when we consider the cross on Golgotha's hill, have you even thought of 
that you should be on that cross. You're the thieves. You should be the ones instead of Christ. But Jesus Christ comes and he dies for you in your place. And then he rises from the grave to do what? Vindicated that you are justified in him. That's the beauty of federal headship. That when Christ lived, as Christ does, we live and we do. All that the second man does, the better Adam, he does for us. The old boys would say Christ is surety. This is a wonderful word if, you, if you're taking notes. He is surety, which is a term derived from Hebrews 7.22, which says this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And that word guarantor could also be rendered surety. Surety. Christ is surety. If you read Burkhoff, if you read Owen, you read these Puritans, they'll say Christ is surety. And what that means is this, saints, that Christ not only stands in the place for us, but everything he will win for us will undoubtedly come to pass. He does not just stand in the place for us, but everything he will win for us comes to pass. There is no second guessing the work of Christ. The son will faithfully perform the covenant he made with the father. Jesus is our assurance, not our faith, not the grace that's been poured to us, but Jesus Christ is our assurance that everything connected with the covenant is unchangeably and eternally sure. Andrew Murray says, there is the assurance of the sufficiency of Christ's finished redemption. All that was needed to put away sin, to free us entirely and forever from his power, has been accomplished by Christ. His blood and death, his resurrection and ascension, have taken us out of the power of the world and transplanted us into a new life in the power of the heavenly world. All that is divine reality. Christ is surety that the divine righteousness and divine acceptance and that all sufficient divine grace and strength are forever ours. He is surety that all these can and will be communicated to us in an unbroken continuance. What that means is this. How do you know? We spoke about this two, uh, two weeks ago. How do we know that on the last day there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ is surety? Christ is our assurance. How can we know that we will not fall under that wrath of God that Pastor Antonio spoke of this morning? That we will be removed from under the condemnation of God and the justice of God will not be poured upon us because the justice of God has been poured upon his son. And we can be sure that we have escaped condemnation by looking at the person and work of Jesus Christ. For he is surety. The work of, of being a federal head for his people will be not one that failed like Adam. It's a guarantee that this one will not fail. That this one will take us to that consummate Sabbath rest. But surety also means that one will take on the legal obligations of another. Consider that. That surety means that one will take on the legal obligations of another. 
What this means, saints, is this. The son assumes the legal responsibilities of the ones whom he came to save. You owe to God everything. You owe to God primarily perfect obedience. What does Christ do? He says, I will take on their legal obligations. Put all of their legal obligations that they need to do upon me. I will go before them. John Owen says, he is to pay, Jesus Christ, is to pay that which they owe and to do what is to be done by them which they cannot perform. What a beautiful statement that is. He is to pay that which they owe and to do what is to be done by them which they cannot perform. You can't take on this debt that you owe. I will take on the debt for you. You can't take on the legal obligations that you owe to God. The eternal son takes on on your behalf. Christ is surety. He takes on all of our legal demands, saints. All of our legal obligations. He puts it on himself. And he fulfills them perfectly. So in summary, the first work of the son is he was to be a federal head, a federal head. The second subpoint, the second work, the son is to become incarnate. Hebrews 10, 5 says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Before the creation of the world, I assume, God the Father prepared for God the Son a body. God the Father prepared before in eternity past a body for the eternal Son in which he would assume. Now, when we say the incarnation, we spoke about this extensively, have we not? The incarnation of Christ and what that all means. So let's do a little review. The incarnation simply means to put on flesh, right? It simply means to take on flesh, to assume flesh, but not simply assuming flesh like a body, but also a reasonable soul. Assuming all of our human infirmities and common properties and essentials. The eternal son was given the task to take on flesh. It wasn't so he just did so to do so. He was given the command to take on flesh. He was to become what he was not, as John Owen would say, but without ceasing to be what he was. He added to himself human nature without taking off his divine nature. Our confession in chapter 8, paragraph 2, best summarizes the incarnation of the Son and reads, the whole or the two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God of very, and very man? Yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. The Son assumed a complete human nature. He united a human nature to his divine nature. As a result, you have one person, one active subject, one what, two whose, human and divine. Jesus Christ acts through both natures. In his humanity, he got tired. In his humanity, he got hungry. 
In his humanity, he had a sleep. He was tempted. All of what means to be human, the eternal son assumed. The word became flesh. The eternal son condescended to our human likeness, taking on our common infirmities and essential properties, yet with one difference, without sin. This one was truly sinless. But we have to ask, saints, why did the son become incarnate? What was the purpose of the incarnation? It's simply this. The son had to become incarnate for the incarnation makes communion with God possible. The son had to become incarnate because communion with God makes communion with God possible. It makes it possible. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, uh, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The incarnation opens up the possibility of communion between God and man, which otherwise there was impossible. it was impossible. And we, when we were in Adam, how can we be brought before God? We can't even approach God, for God cannot look upon evil. He cannot look upon sin. So we can't even get into the door, into the very realm of where God is at. B.B. Warfield has said the Son descended an infinite distance to reach man's highest conceivable exaltation. As our confession says, God cannot commune with man except by some voluntary condescension. The distance between man and God is so great. And saints, the incarnation is not simply just a voluntarily condescension, but it's the most glorious form of condescension, is it not? Jesus Christ wasn't half God and half man. He was truly God and truly man. He was very man of very man, while remaining very God of very God. What condescension is this? We've spoken of this before, but the one whom Isaiah speaks of that sits on this throne comes down and stoops and takes on our common infirmities. He takes on our sinful flesh, yet was not sinful himself. What amazing condescension. One pastor has even said, well, even if the eternal son is born in a royal palace and given a golden bottle with silk sheets and have all these servants at his uh, disposal, that's still a form of mighty condescension. He comes lower than that to the form of a servant, form of a slave, condescends to our likeness. Mark Jones has said, if Jesus were in all things only man, he would be like us at an infinite distance from God. Meaning this, if the eternal son simply took off his divinity, he left his uh, simplicity, his impassibility, all those things at the throne. And when he became in the flesh, he was simply a man then he would be at an infinite distance from God. He would have to save himself. And saints, we can also say, if Jesus were in all things only God, he would be at an infinite distance from us. The incarnation brings holy God and sinful man together in the one person, Jesus Christ. Not to say that Jesus was sinful at all, but we needed one who was truly man and truly God. 
And Christ as the mediator, as the go-between, as the middle, as the God-man. He bridges the gap between infinite God and finite man, does he not? He bridges the gap between creator and creature. He brings them together through the work of the incarnate son. Jesus makes a way for sinners to approach the very throne room of God. Where once we could not approach. Where once we could not come near. Jesus Christ has brought us to the very mercy seat of God. He sat us on the father's lap. This is what Jesus Christ does for us, saints. He brings us to God. So in summary of the second point, sub point, what was the second work of the son? He was to take on flesh. He was to assume our likeness as uh, you've heard this before, as Gregory Nazianzo says, what is not assumed is not healed. If Jesus Christ does not take on the whole me, the whole me is not redeemed. So we needed one to comment on our very own likeness for us to be redeemed. Now the third sub point, the son had to obey the law of God perfectly. The son had to obey the law of God perfectly. The moral law was a part of the covenant of redemption. And the son was to keep the moral law of God perfectly. Now, what is the moral law of God? Well, I think if we look for the best summarization of the moral law of God, it is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments reflect God's righteous and moral character. We, all peoples, are obligated to obey God's holy law, all of us. Whether you are in Adam or in Christ, you are obligated to obey God's holy law. You are created in the image of God. You live in his world. Therefore, you are obligated to obey God's holy law. But the problem with God's moral law is that in Adam, no one can obey it. No one can fulfill it. No one can properly offer to God proper obedience because of the sin that we have inherited. We cannot approach the law of God the way that God prescribes us to approach the law of God. The law of God is not a delight to our soul, but rather it's a terror. It's a nightmare for all of us, is it not? It shows us how wicked we are. It shows us how sinful we are. It screams to us that you cannot do this. You need someone to go before you to do this. No one can obey God's perfect law. All have failed. Yet Jesus Christ succeeded, did he not? Christ obeyed and fulfilled the law on our behalf. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 4.4, 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, born under the law. Jesus Christ is born under the Mosaic Covenant as well as the Davidic Covenant. He is born under the moral law of God, but also he must apply to the ceremonial and civil laws. He was born of the woman, meaning that he was born as an Israelite, born under a certain context to do what we could not do, to do what every Israelite failed in doing, offer perfect obedience to God's law, Morally, ceremonially, and judicially. Mind you, Jesus never had to offer sacrifice for himself. He never sinned, right? So there, he fulfills the ceremonial law of God. Christ is born under the law. 
To do what? To redeem us from under the curse of the law. Saints, do you understand that apart from Christ, that you were under a curse? And there was nothing that you could do about it in and of yourself. But Jesus Christ is born not under that curse necessarily, but born in the conditions that that curse brought about. He lived in a fallen world. He lived in a world and conversed with fallen, sinful people. He healed many of them. He was born under the conditions in which it would seem impossible for him to obey this, this obligation, would it not? How can he be born? It's, how can he be born in a, in, a, in a world that is full of sin and yet never sin yourself? It's like you being in a house and everyone's doing drugs. At one point, you're going to do drugs. At some point, you're going to give in. Jesus Christ is born under these conditions, comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he's, and the Father commands that he is to obey the moral law of God perfectly. And then let's not even get into the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Or it's not simply do this, but also where's your heart at? It's a heart posture as well. He fulfills all that. And saints, this is why it was necessary for the Father to command the Son to obey the moral law of God. For in Adam, the law was our enemy. It reminded us of our sin. We cannot escape the condemnation that the law brings. That is why the Son of God, and think about this, the Son of God who gave the law, the Son of God who authored the law, becomes flesh and becomes subjective to that very law that he authored. The one who gave the law becomes subjected to the very law that he gave in order to pay the penalty of sin and to merit everlasting life for his people. And saints, without the Son perfectly obeying the moral law of God on the behalf of us, we have no righteousness accredited to our account. Let's say Jesus Christ, or the eternal Son, becomes incarnate, but the law is not a part of those obligations. Well, what righteousness is accredited to our account? When? A sinner dies. They are judged by God's righteous, holy standard. But when we die, although God will judge us, he will see us not in Adam, but he will see us as the second Adam, the one who fulfilled what Adam could not do, the one who obeyed the very law that we fail to, com- to obey every single day. This is why the eternal son needed to uh, say yes to this command, this obligation of fulfilling the moral law of God, the entire law of God. It was because of Christ's perfect obedience to the moral law, but as well as the ceremonial and civil law, he earns a righteous standing before holy God for us. How can we stand before God declared righteous because the eternal son took on human flesh and obeyed the law perfectly? That is why. That is why there's no condemnation. That is why the wrath of God has been removed from you. Because Jesus Christ takes on all of the moral obligations that you have before holy God. He fulfills the law. Doesn't mean he does away with the law. 
We will speak about this when we speak about the Christ and the law. He does does not do away with the law uh, at one moment. He fulfills the law, meaning that we are under the curse of the law. The law no longer condemns us, does not justify us. It does not sanctify us, but it shows us how we are to live in a sinful world and be holy unto God. That's what the law does for us. So to summarize this third subpoint, the work of the son was to obey God's law. Now let's move to our last final subpoint, and that is the son was to suffer and die for his people. This is what makes the covenant of redemption so glorious and majestic. The son was to suffer and die for his people. And this is what makes Christ's covenant unique. This is what makes Christ's covenant unique. When God imposed on Adam uh, this covenant of works, God, one of the commandments or obligations that God gave to Adam was, Adam wasn't supposed to suffer. In the covenant of works, when God gave Adam this work, one of that work was you're not supposed to suffer or it wasn't to suffer. And we can say the same with the Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic covenant, that none were given the command to suffer. And none of these covenants were they commanded to suffer. Israel was not commanded to suffer, to stay in the land. David was not commanded in the rest of his progeny to suffer. But in the covenant of redemption, the father commands to the son that he must suffer and die for his people. Isn't that interesting? That why would he make all these covenants with all these people in time and space, but in eternity, and leave out suffering, but in eternity, this one must suffer. Now, before you run off and say, God is mean, and God is unfair, this is cosmic child abuse, and all those outlandish things that many liberals love to say, it was necessary in order for us to have a right standing before holy God, there must be blood. There must be suffering. The son must suffer unto death for his particular people. But again, why did Jesus have to suffer? Why couldn't the incarnate son obey and fulfill God's law perfectly and then go back to heaven? You ever thought about that? Why didn't he just, why didn't, why couldn't he just come live for us, obey God's law? That's enough, right? Forget, you know, the suffering. Forget the the nails. Forget all those things. Forget the crucifixion. Why couldn't he just live and not die? Why did he have to die? Why did he have to suffer unto death? Why was this part of the covenant of redemption? Friends, the answer is this. In order for God's wrath and for his justice to be appeased and satisfied, Blood had to be shed. That's the simple answer. Why? Why death? Why suffering? Why bloodshed? Because God's justice demanded it. God's justice demanded that there must be a sacrifice to be made for blood to be shed. God demanded a payment for sins. For God must and we've seen this 
in the morning, this morning, did we not in this sermon? He must punish sin. Sin cannot hide forever from God. He will punish sin the same way he punished the world when he brought about that flood. The same way he punished Babel. The same way he punished Sodom and Gomorrah. He must punish those who sin against him. Blood must be shed. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 9.22, under the law, almost everything is pure, uh, purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. God told Adam the wages of sin are death. Sin deserves infinite punishment because it's an offense to God's infinite justice. It's an offense to his infinite majesty. It's an offense to his infinite holiness. It's cosmic treason, as you've heard. One sin against God. One sin against God deserves an infinite amount of punishment, does it not? That is why the incarnation is of utmost importance, saints. For the only one who was qualified to pay the full debt that we owe to God was not simply man, but it was God himself. Man could not pay for this infinite punishment. Augustine says, and uh, he has a wonderful line in his confessions. He says, uh, he's talking about God, a prayer to God. You owe nothing, yet you pay your debts. You owe nothing, but you pay your debts. You write off our debts to you. What graciousness is this from our God? What love is this? You, you don't owe nothing, but you pay your own debt. You write off your own, we write, you write off our debts to you. Let's remember saints, when Adam sinned against God, the effects was an infinite one. For, for he sinned against an infinite God. Uh, sin is infinite. This is why you can't pay for your own sins. You might say, well, why can't I perfectly obey the law of God? What will that do for me? Saints, what will that do for you? That will not get you your get out of hell free card. You're a finite creature who owes an infinite debt to God. What will you do? There is no escape. You can't live perfectly. You can't obey the law of God perfectly. John Owen says, Jesus had to make atonement for sin in our nature assumed and answer the justice of God by suffering and undergoing what was due unto the assumed unto them. With, uh, without which uh, it is not possible that they should be delivered or saved unto the glory of God. Meaning that Jesus Christ had to assume our nature, atone for our sins, suffer, undergo the wrath of God in our nature. And if he does not do that, then we are not saved, simply put. We are not redeemed. We are not healed if Jesus Christ does not suffer. He must suffer. One theologian has said Christ's infinite nature, namely his deity, gave to his finite human sufferings infinite value. You might ask, well, how does Jesus Christ, we'll speak about this more when we speak of the death of Christ. How does Jesus Christ, who dies as man, right, because God cannot die, dies as man, pay for an infinite punishment? Because his divine nature adds infinite worth to his person. Don't forget, he's the God-man. 
He's the God-man. So everything he does, he does. As man, yes. But also, the base of his person is divine. So when he works on our behalf, when he obeys the law of God on our behalf, when he does all that he does in his life on our behalf, he does so for us, and that's accredited to us, not just for a year, not just for a season, but for eternity. Because his person is of infinite value. He's the God-man. The God-man, Jesus Christ, had to die. For his death was of infinite value. Christ removes, in his death, he removes the infinite punishment against sin, against our holy God. For without his death, God's justice is not satisfied. Without shedding of blood, without Christ's perfect satisfied, uh, sacrifice, we are still in debt before God. The work of redemption required the incarnate son to suffer unto death. So in closing this point, what was the work of the son? It was, he was to be a federal head, become incarnate, obey the law of God perfectly, and he was to suffer and die for his people. Imagine if someone gave to you those obligations. You would say, what am I, Superman? (laughs) I can't do this. This is impossible. This is what makes the work of Christ glorious, does it not? That he did for us. And don't let this sound, let this be cliche. He did for us, saints, what you can never do for yourself. I mean, he really did for us what you can never, ever You can think about it. You can wish. You can dream about it. But you can never actualize it. Jesus Christ actualized what you dream about. He actualized what all dreamed about. When we speak about the, when we speak about the, um, the rest that was offered to Adam in the garden, when we read throughout the Bible, we see that This rest is constantly coming back up. People think that this is the one who will bring us eternal rest. This is the one who will finally do for us what Adam failed to do for us. What do we see in Jesus Christ? He does for us what every major prophet, what every major king, what every major priest could not do for us, for he is our prophet, priest, and king. Louis Burkhoff has said the covenant of redemption was for Christ a covenant of works. For him, the law of the original covenant applied, meaning that the moral law was given to the eternal son when they uh, covenanted the father and the son, namely that eternal life could only be obtained, here this eternal life can only be obtained by meeting the demands of the law. As the last Adam, Christ obtains eternal life for sinners and reward for his faithful obedience. What this means is this, saints, that the covenant of redemption, although it is an agreement in eternity past between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, was for Jesus Christ in time and space a covenant of works. It was for Jesus Christ a work that he was to do, a work that the Father gave to him, various commands 
be a federal head, take on their flesh, live in their flesh, die in their flesh. And if you do all these things perfectly, you will be raised in the flesh. Not simply for yourself, but for all those whom I have given to you in eternity past. When we think about the covenant of works, saints, the original covenant of works with Adam and God, what was offered? Confirmed righteousness. Eternal Sabbath rest. Right? A state that will never vanish away, an immutable state. What does Christ bring to us? Well, he brings to us what Adam should have brought to us. He brings to us confirmed righteousness. We stand before holy God. Although we are sinners, although we sin, I should say, sin does not define who we are. We are saints in the beloved. We are saints in Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for us. What else does he bring for us, to us? He brings to us, Jesus Christ, this eternal rest. This rest that will never fade away. Not a rest that we are accustomed to when we take the best nap in the world. <laughs> but this rest where we have Jesus Christ as the one whom we look at. This rest who we have Jesus Christ as the one whom we see every single day with glorified eyes. And we say to ourselves that this will never fade away. That this rest will never go away. Don't you wish sometimes that Sunday lasts forever? Don't you wish sometimes that the preacher, hopefully, will never stop? When you are seeing, when you see Coram Deo, when you see God face to face, there's just something there that you wish, I, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave this place. What we see in the eternal state is that Jesus Christ takes us to a place that is far better than the paradise that was offered and that the paradise that was in, that Adam was in, in the Garden of Eden. He takes us to a paradise that will never be lost, for he has gained it in his person and work. That's the glorious news of the covenant of redemption. For Christ, it is the covenant of works. And what do we receive? As a result of Jesus Christ completing this work, what do we get? Yes, we get eternal life. Yes, we get confirmed righteousness. Yes, we get creator Sabbath rest but we enter into a far better covenant. We enter into a covenant that all people in the old dreamed of. A covenant that's not, that does not say, do this and live. A covenant of grace that says, I have done this, and it's yours by faith alone. I end with a poem from William Geddes. He says this, this is the covenant of grace, which brings my soul so sweet solace. There is a gracious pactum between the Father and the Son. And by the Son, with Adam's race, who should repent 
and seek his grace. The son unto the father spake, I will man's nature on me take. I will myself a ransom to give for the elect that they may live. Come, son, if thou do so, they shall be saved from hell and woe. The father to poor man, he said, to thou faith, to to thou believe with saving faith. In this, my son, I'll give thee peace. Eternal love shall be the embrace. Let's pray.